Good to see y'all. My name is Justin. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this is, uh, is going to be a fun night, or at least uh, an interesting night. I have to start by saying that uh, my voice is a little rough. It's a little harsh. In fact, I was just telling Ricardo behind the stage that uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it's lasted all day long. So I started to get sick on Thursday. It seems like anytime I get sick, um, it affects my voice. Um, and so that's always a little nerve-wracking. It was starting to get better uh, Friday night, and then Friday night happened. And uh, I, not what you're thinking, I was at a football game, and uh, it was an amazing game, and uh, I, I lost my mind several times in the midst of that game. And uh, I, I've been a season ticket holder with the Devils for five years now, uh, die hard, and it was an incredible, incredible game. And so uh, it, I, I lost my voice again Friday night. It's actually a big weekend. I took my son to his first ASU game. Um, my, my daughter finally mastered the pitchfork. And so, uh, and then I took my son to his first Diamondbacks game last night, and that was a crazy game. And uh, my daughter was there too, and the whole time um, she would look at me and she'd go, this daddy now now and I'm like no wrong sport awesome but wrong sport and so um she she's just been doing this all weekend which I get because it was a great win and uh and so she's still excited too um and then uh and then today's uh you know church so that's good too um so good weekend <clears throat> my voice is uh is holding up better than I thought um but uh yeah, it's been, uh, been a little crazy. We are starting a new series this evening that we're calling Scandalous. I know Ricardo mentioned that um, originally we, had, we were just going to call it the hard sayings of Jesus, but apparently um, our media communications guy said if we call it Scandalous, more people will come. So I'm like, all right, whatever. And so we've had, we've had some people go, so what, what is this about? Like, is this going to be PG-13? Can I bring my kids? Is it going to be like sexy? And uh, I'm like, well... Yeah, but not, uh, <laughs> seven o'clock service. Here we go. Never makes the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, Jesus's reputation in pop culture is obvious. Awesome, uh, uh, often one of uh, being kind of soft and having kind of long flowing hair and kissing babies and hugging grandmas and stuff. And, and uh, we thought, well, that was a big part of his ministry, the, the grandma part. But, um, but he also occasionally said some hard things. And so we're looking at uh, five weeks worth of uh, more difficult kind of truth moments in Jesus's ministry. And uh, this week obviously is a little unique because of September 11th. And so we wanted to um, be, I, I think, aware of the fact that everywhere you look, um, everyone's talking about September 11th across the world. It's a Sunday, and so we thought we'd be fools um, to not talk about it. And so what we're going to look at in Luke 13 is certainly a hard saying of Jesus, um, but, but we're also connecting the dots a little bit uh, to September 11th. So Luke chapter 13, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise up your hand. And we'll give you a Bible. If you, if you don't own one, keep it. It's yours. If you do own one and you, you forgot it at home, just uh, throw it on that rack on, on your way out or, or give it to um, a, a needy person. But uh, we are going to connect the dots between Luke 13 and September 11th, though not in the way that is going to seem pretty obvious right off the bat. Um, I, I hope to be able to connect it in a little bit of a subtler way. 
But I, I was thinking back on, on September 11th just this week, as uh, you know, a lot of people are, and, but just in preparation for this message. And 10 years ago, I was a pastor at a church in San Diego, but I wasn't the preaching pastor. And so um, I, I was there at church working, doing my thing, but I wasn't preaching. And I remember thinking about, you know, what is, what's, what's Pastor Miles going to talk about? How's, how's he going to address this in a, you know, in a meaningful way? We had huge crowds of people uh, there, uh, more even than usual, and just people coming to church hoping that somebody would have something profound to say. Somebody, just hoping somebody would have something meaningful to say to give them categories for, for the pain that, that they had experienced, um, either emotional or, or specific connection to somebody involved in September 11th. And I know that each of, everybody kind of um, looks back on September 11th differently. My guess is that the Tempe campus has a pretty unique view of September 11th in light of um, really its age. So um, raise your hand if you were in college when September 11th happened. Okay. Keep your hand up um, and raise your hand if you were out of college, past college when September 11th. Okay. Raise your hand if you were like really hoping to get into college at that point meaning you were not in college yet. Man, you guys are dumb. Uh, <laughs> college is not helping you guys with your listening comprehension skills. So we were, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about uh, September 11th in, in the office this week, and our intern, Jake, you know, we were like, what were you doing? He's like, man, I was in sixth grade. And so um, that's, a, that's a really different experience of September 11th um, as an elementary school student than as a, uh, a real, real human. And so uh, the, it, everyone, I, I think, kind of looks back on this a little bit differently. And, and I remember very vividly going into the office that morning and, and everyone was kind of freaking out and we were watching the news on, on a little television and updating the internet every 30 seconds because uh, the first one hit and then the second one and we heard about the Pentagon and we heard about Pennsylvania and it was just a crazy combination of events and then the anthrax stuff in the weeks following and it was just, it was just a really interesting time and, and a, a, an event that has no doubt shaped uh, the last 10 years in ways that I am n no authority to, to kind of unpack for us today. But I was I'm watching some YouTube videos this morning, um, and I hadn't done that in a long, long time, just of the, of the reports from that day. And, and there was one clip in particular, it was about nine minutes long, but it showed about a dozen different news reports of what was going on and live shots. And, and what I kind of had forgotten was the time difference between the first tower getting hit and the second tower getting hit. So there was enough time where all the cameras got there um, after the first tower got hit. And so just about everybody had a live shot of the second airplane going into um, the South Tower. And there was one news footage, one piece of footage in particular that was interesting to me because it was, it was Tom Brokaw, I believe, who ha has seen a lot and, and it has seen a lot of pain and a lot of war and a lot of injustice and a lot of things over time. And they were talking about the North Tower, the first tower, and they were talking about it in terms of it being an accident. And they weren't sure, and they just thought, man, we, we saw a plane banking really hard. Was it trying to avoid the tower? Was it trying to hit the tower? No one was really sure. And then as they were talking about it and continued to refer to it as an accident, almost, um, almost hopeful in kind of going, man, th this reassuring themselves, kind of, this was an accident, right? This was an accident. 
And while they're talking about this, um, and they have a live shot of the video, you see a plane come in from the side and hit the second tower. And, and at that moment, moment, Brokaw said something like, um, well, I think it's now confirmed that this was not an accident. And it seemed like in that moment some sort of innocence was lost. or some, So there was kind of just an acknowledgement of, okay, the world just got different. We just got, this, this just went from being a horrible, tragic accident to we're under attack. And so th- there's all kinds of ways to, to kind of process that moment and, and ways to look back and, and how do we remember it and how do we, really, how do we look at it? This is a question I want to answer tonight um, to some degree is how do we approach this um, as Christians? How, how should we approach moments like this? How, how should we process moments like this? Because um, one thing that our pastor said was one of the first things he said um, that, that really stuck with me is he got up and said, this is not the first national crisis and it won't be the last. That this is, this is something that happens and it happens often and it's gonna continue to happen because we live in a broken world, a, a, a dark world where, where sin has, has, has a significant foothold. And so these things aren't new and they're gonna continue to take place. And so in, in light of that, as we, we look back on something that happened, but also it, with full knowledge that those kinds of things will continue to happen, um, I wanna look at Luke chapter 13 Verses 1 through 5. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, both stories in this passage are only told here. Biblically or historically, we're only told here. Um, they're, they're local stories that didn't have big national impact, so the historians don't pick up kind of local small stories like this. Um, so we, we don't have a ton of information to go on. What it seems like happened is that a group of Galileans, Jews, went into the temple to make some sacrifices, and in the midst of that process, whether it had been before, right outside the temple, actually in the temple, or right after, um, Pilate had ordered an attack or at least Pilate was being blamed for an attack on these Jews, and and many of them were killed. And so as they are making sacrifices, um, spilling the blood of animals for atonement for sin, their blood was spilled. Therefore, the language of their blood being mingled together um, with their sacrifices. And so essentially this group of people comes up to Jesus and says, did you hear about the Galileans? To which Jesus replies in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Which is kind of odd since since the people didn't say anything about that. And so these guys go, hey, Jesus, did you hear the news about the Galileans? And Jesus goes, what do you think, that they were somehow worse sinners than all the other Galileans? They're like, no, no, Jesus, we we just wondered if you knew. Don't, you know. No worries, man. But, but Jesus does kind of his Jesus thing here and, and, and sees, through, sees through what they're saying and, and, and kind of reads their hearts a little bit. And so kind of they, they go, hey, did you hear about this news? And he goes, oh, oh, I see what you're getting at. I see what you're doing there. He says, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? He says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. 
but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So um, we know that there was a place in Siloam in the lower part of Jerusalem in the south end of the city, um, and there was a pool that had a lot of kind of superstitions surrounding it about if there was a ripple in the pool and you got in the pool, you could get healed, and it was just kind of magic superstition stuff. And so what we can just kind of assume or is implied in the passage was that there was some tower, um, potentially just construction scaffolding, that fell over and landed on 18 people and killed them. So Jesus says, do do you think that those people that died in Jerusalem because of this random act, this tragedy, do you think that they were somehow more sinful than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? Is that why that happened? It's as if Jesus sees through what they're saying and and gets to to the heart of them basically coming to Jesus going, hey Jesus, they, they were more sinful, right? They were sinners. That's why that bad thing happened, right? In essence, they're in a situation where um, something happened outside of their control that they don't quite understand. It seems random. They, they can't control their world. And so they're trying to put it in a category and they go, okay, so they must have been really sinful and that's why the tower fell. That's why they got stabbed, that there's a reason for it. Therefore, as long as I'm not the most sinful, therefore, those things won't happen to me, controlling their situation. We know that this was, to some degree, a cultural presupposition because in John chapter 9, the disciples say basically the same thing. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the disciples make the same mistake, and they go, Oh, there's a guy who's blind. This tragedy has happened. What happened? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Why is he blind? Jesus goes, It's got nothing to do with that. He just blows up their whole presupposition. The same presupposition that these people brought where they come to Jesus going, hey, 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 the reason they died is because of some specific sin. Right, Jesus? Right? Right? He goes, no. He goes, what would make you think that these Galileans were any more sinful than other Galileans? What would make you think that these, these people in Jerusalem would be more sinful than anyone else in Jerusalem? He goes, that's not the way it works. Tragedies like, like this this, uh, this, this murder in the temple or this this tower falling um these aren't these specific tragedies are not connected to some specific sin are are tragedies like this one judgment for sin are tragedies like 9-11 judgment for sin yeah But but is it a specific judgment for a specific sin no so after 9-11, some prominent evangelical leaders um, apparently haven't read the Bible and, and started to do um, some of the same stuff, and they would start to connect the dots and go, well, 9-11 happened because of this. And so they would start to name off things, whatever their kind of pet project was. So they'd go, 9-11 happened because we took prayer out of the schools. happened because we took the Ten Commandments out of the courtroom. 9-11 happened because we've let the homosexuals take over. 9-11 happened because of Teletubbies. (laughs) 9-11, right? Which that one might have been the most legitimate of them all, right? So they, they tried to go specific tragedy must have been the result of specific sin. Jesus blew up that whole idea. 
are, are tragedies, catastrophes, things like this that we are remembering today, are they judgment for sin, consequences for sin? Yes. But not specifically. In a far more general sense, events like this are the natural consequence of a broken, fallen, and sinful world. They serve as reminders to us that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, that this world is fragile, that our lives are fragile, that at any moment our name can be called, our mortality can catch up with us. That's what these moments are meant to be. Now, our connection here between Luke 13 and 9-11 is not that a tower fell. I know some of you are going, oh, I see where he's going. He's connecting the dots there. The tower fell, the towers, yeah, I get it. <laughs> no, you missed it completely. The connection between this passage and 9-11 is about the assumptions we bring to tragedy. So if, if Jesus had been around on, on earth a, after 9-11, and, and I know I'm going out on a limb here, but walk with me. Um, if he had been there and, and people came, came up to him in a similar way as we see in Luke 13 and said, Jesus, did you, did you hear about the World Trade Center? Did you hear about what happened? Did you hear about 9-11? My sense is that Jesus wouldn't have responded to us by saying, what, do you think the people in the towers were more sinful than you? Is that what you're getting at? Do you think that the firefighters and the policemen that died when the towers collapsed, do you think they were worse sinners than you? And, that, and that's kind of where you're, I don't think Jesus would have said that. Because that's, that's not our presupposition. I, I don't remember hearing anybody blame the people in the towers for what happened. I don't, I don't remember hearing anybody talk like these Galileans are talking. My sense is that if we had, right after 9-11, gone up to Jesus and said, did you, did you, hear, did you hear about this? Jesus would have looked at us, looked into our hearts and gone, what makes you think those people were innocent? What makes you think you are innocent? What, why would you assume that, that they are innocent people not deserving of some consequence or judgment? Why, why would you assume that about yourself? See, I think we and these people in Luke 13 actually are dealing with, with tragedy in very similar ways, but with nuanced difference. The people in Luke 13 are looking at some tragic moment and going, okay, that, that can't be me. I don't want that to be me. Therefore, I'm going to say that they must have been worse sinners. Therefore, separating myself, giving me a sense of comfort that if, as long as I'm not a really bad sinner, that won't happen to me. We, on the other hand, look at a tragedy like this and go, but they were innocent, just like me. See, the scandalous thing that Jesus says here in Luke 13 is that you are not an innocent person deserving only God's blessing. Which I think is the presupposition many of us bring into our lives. That we just... We go through life assuming things will be good. It's a product of luxury. We are the children of luxury. We have largely grown up in a stress-free, pain-free environment. These are not the assumptions that many of the young people around the world bring into their life. Young people who have known nothing but war, nothing but strife, nothing but poverty. They don't bring these assumptions, but we do. 
because that has largely defined our lives. Our problems are what level of luxury we are going to attain to. We don't typically wonder about whether or not we're going to eat. And so, product of our culture, a product of our lives, a product of our experience, we are surprised when bad things happen. We are shocked and sometimes offended when tragedy strikes. These are, these are the assumptions that we bring in. We assume good things are going to happen, and so when bad things happen, we, we tend to not have categories, and so here's what we do. The people in Luke 13 blamed the people. We identify with the people and blame God. So in times like this, we hear things like, how could a good God, if God were so powerful, how could he? I read a quote from the New York Times this week um, where, where a writer shortly after 9-11 says, well, this, this pretty much puts the nail in the coffin um, of the Christian conception of God, doesn't it? That if God is both powerful and good, I mean, this, this 9-11 certainly puts that to bed, doesn't it? That if there really was a God that was powerful that could have stopped this attack, he would have especially if he's as good as the Christians say he is. But he didn't, therefore he's either not powerful enough to reroute airplanes or he is not good enough to care. And so in these moments, we tend to get angry at God, blame God, lose our faith in God. But we don't, we don't blame each other, we don't blame ourselves. We tend not to look inwardly, but we look upwardly. Tim Keller, who is a, a pastor in Manhattan and was during this time, addresses this idea in his book, The Reason for God. He says this, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. Essentially, Keller goes, listen, if you believe that there is a God big enough and powerful enough to reroute airplanes, to stop floods, to stop tsunamis, to calm earthquakes, if you believe in a God that powerful, so powerful that you can blame him when he doesn't do that, then at that same moment, do you not also have a God great enough and transcendent enough and powerful enough to have reasons for those things that you don't understand? See, all of us know exactly what this is like on a, on a smaller scale. There's not a person in this room, not a person in this room, who can't look back on some moment in their life and go, that was painful, and that was hard, and I hated it at the time, but now that I'm six months out, or a year out, or five, or ten years out, I look back on that moment and go, I wouldn't change it for a thing. It was hard, I hated it, but it's done this in my life. It's connected the dots on these things, and now my life is better, so much better that I wouldn't change that pain. That, that breakup was so hard, but if I, if I hadn't broken up with her, I never would have met her, and her is way better than her. 
Okay, we, we, all, we all have that story at, at some level. Even things that are really hard, really hard, really painful. And we don't diminish those things in our own lives. Just, just because we say at some later date, I wouldn't trade it, doesn't, doesn't trivialize the pain, but it gives us perspective. We go, that really hard thing produced this in me, and I like this. But we look at things like September 11th and go, now, okay, I get a breakup and you meet a better girl, and that's, that's nice, Justin, but, but thousands of people dying in a terrorist attack? Hundreds of thousands of people dying in a tsunami? Thousands dead at Katrina? How do you see purpose and meaning and some greater good as a result of that? So here's, as we say those things, we think those things, and as we, even if we don't think through it logically, we just have kind of these visceral reactions, essentially what we're saying is this. I can see the purposes of God and acknowledge the purposes of God on a few conditions. First condition is, that I can plainly see what the purpose was. So if that purpose is painfully obvious to me, to me, I can see it, then and only then will I begin to give credit for what that was and see, okay, there was maybe purpose to that. So that's number one. I have to be able to see it. Two is, whatever blessings come from it have to be so good that it, it's worth the depth of pain experienced then. So if you have some real pain and then five years down the road you go, okay, but I guess it produced this little kind of good thing, but I would never trade this little good for that great pain. So whatever, whatever comes as a result of it, I have to know really clearly and I have to decide that it brings me greater joy to offset that deep pain. And that becomes our definition of, okay, I can see how God brings about purpose in suffering. Which, unfortunately, is a horribly narrow, shallow, and self-centered definition of the purposes of God. Because it rules out a few things. It rules out pain that results in some good that you don't recognize, that you are just too blind to see, that you haven't allowed yourself to see. It rules out any pain that results in somebody else's good and not your own. It rules out any pain that results in good that you just don't value. And so here's what I wonder. I wonder if, if you experienced physical or relational pain that only resulted in greater holiness whether or not that would be worth it to you. Whether or not you would look back and go, you know what, that cancer was hard, but I'm closer to God now, and so it was worth it. Or if maybe you'd go, hey God, maybe next time, instead of cancer drawing me close to you, maybe something awesome could draw me closer to you. <laughs> and we go, ah, I, don't, I don't know that I would want to do that again. 
So it rules out all of these things that potentially God, who if we believe to be God, has to be in some sense transcendent, greater than, greater perspective, eternal perspective, not only seeing you, but seeing all humanity and going, this pain in your life is a direct connection to this blessing in someone else's life that you'll never know. Is that good enough for you? Can you trust in a God who is sovereign over all and brings about good purposes in it all? So some people directly after 9-11 began to get angry at God. But some people just bypassed the anger thing and just chose not to believe in God at all. And just said, when, when something this unjust happens... When something this wicked happens, I, I just cannot believe in God. I, I just can't do it. C.S. Lewis, before he was um, the great Christian writer and most oft-quoted person in this pulpit, um, was, was actually an atheist. And in fact, much of his writing is reflection back on what he believed as an atheist and, and now how he processes it as a Christian. He says this in Mere Christianity. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. In other words, Lewis says, if, if there's nothing transcendent, there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing bigger, no, no person, no entity, no text, nothing, and it's just, it's just us, it's just natural, then, then how do we get categories like just and unjust? How, how can we impose big philosophical categories upon a universe without the perspective of all eternity and all people? He says we simply can't. As humans, without God, the best that we can do is say, I like this, I don't like this. This was good for me, this was bad for me. This gave to me, this took away from me. This felt good, this hurt. All we can do at that point is make statements from a completely self-centered position. That's all we can do. He goes, at that point, I've lost my ability to say anything important about the universe, and therefore, that universe cannot reflect on a God, because all I've said is, I like this or I don't like that. So um, this morning when I was watching these YouTube videos and, and seeing kind of the aftermath and just the emotion and the voice of the news commentators, I, I actually got kind of emotional watching them, which if you know me, that happens without about every lunar eclipse. And so um, just not an emotional guy. And so um, it was kind of surprising, like, what is this feeling? And, and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I was just, just kind of watching this thing and I, and I thought, you know, we can, we can talk philosophy and we can talk logic and, and we can maybe break down some of the, some of the, thoughts that we have about these tragedies and whether they're just or unjust and, and, and some of that we can argue away. But at the end of the day, something happens here in the midst of tragedy that, that we can't argue away. 
something, something visceral, something emotive, something real and important happens here. And, and no amount of logic, no amount of talking people through um, can undo what happens here when you lose um, your father or your mother to cancer, when a, when a relationship goes bad, when you lose a job or a home, when your future seems bleak, when, when you get sick, logic and, and philosophy don't, don't do anything about here. Which is, which is why our faith is so important. Because our, our, our faith, is, and, and I certainly can only speak with any level of authority to the Christian faith, but our, our faith not only deals with us intellectually, but it deals with us at a heart level as well. And by heart, I don't even just mean emotional. I just mean everything that is in the center of who we are, center of our being. Keller um, obviously did a, a lot of memorial services after um, 9-11, and about five years after um, 9-11, he, he said this in, in one of those services. He says, the cross tells you what the reason for your suffering isn't. He says, it can't be that God doesn't love you, that he has no plan for you. We don't know the reason that God allows evil and suffering to continue, but we know what the reason isn't. We know what the reason can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. Why? Because he got involved with his son. Christianity alone tells us that God lost his son in an unjust attack. We know because of the gospel story, because of the whole biblical story, that, that God is actually almost always, always, on the side of the oppressed. In the Old Testament, he says that he loves the oppressed, that he is the father to the fatherless, that he is the husband to the widow. He says, in fact, if you oppress the poor, you oppress me. And the story of the gospel itself, that, that God himself entered into the suffering, that God had clear purposes for the most unjust suffering the world has ever known. And yet we, we know that God had a clear purpose even in that suffering. So the one thing we can't say is that suffering is evidence that God doesn't love the world. John 3.16 tells us that the suffering of the Son was in fact because God loved the world. Like the, the story itself, the gospel story itself, itself is, is one of comfort to us. The way the gospel story ends is so unlike many of our hero stories. Jesus didn't face down death the way William Wallace faced down death. The final scenes of Wallace's life, he's, he's laying on that wooden plank about to get gutted and he yells out, freedom! Staring down his enemies with a defiant, steely gaze, undeterred by the pain to come unbroken, his spirit unbroken. He's saying, I may die, but I'm not really going to die. And these are the heroes that we tell their stories. This is William Wallace. This is John Wayne. These are the men that we look to and we can't connect with at any level because we wilt in the midst of suffering and pain. But we look to them defiantly going against their oppressors, walking into certain death. It doesn't bother them. 
That's not Jesus' story. In the final hours before Jesus died, we see him in the garden praying by himself, having brought three of his closest friends with him. He goes off to pray, he weeps, he asks God that, that his future may not work out the way he, he knows it's going to. He says, may this cup pass from me, may you not ask me to do this thing. He goes back to his friends who are asleep. He says, can you not stay with me and pray with me and be with me even in this hour, even in this moment of greatest pain, can you not be with me? that his body began to break down, that he was sweating out blood because he was so stressed out, that he goes on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus himself endured great physical pain, spiritual pain, relational pain, and he experienced it like a human does, like we do. The writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, that he experienced life and pain like we experience life and pain. That the Christian God is not some separate God looking out and kind of being the puppet master over his creation, but a God who entered into our suffering so that we might see our suffering undone. Jesus didn't suffer just so he could be an empathetic ear for us in our times of pain. Is he? Sure. But that only scratches the surface as to why Jesus suffered and died. He suffered and died, and in the bleakest moment, in the darkest moment where there seemed like there was no hope, he found hope. And God was faithful to his son and raised him from the dead because he loved him and he had a purpose for that suffering, a redemptive purpose for the universe that Jesus suffered and died and was raised so that when we suffer, we might have hope that one day it won't be like this anymore. And so in the midst of moments like this, when tragedy strikes and it will strike and it will strike and it will strike, that we can just say, come Lord Jesus, come. Knowing that one day he will restore the pain, undo the suffering. And that's the hope we cling to. I read this quote a couple weeks ago in our message on the resurrection, but it's, it's really good and worth reading again. Um, Dostoevsky in the Brothers Karamazov says, I have a childlike conviction that the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over, that the whole offensive comedy of human contradictions will disappear like a pitiful mirage, a vile concoction of man's mind, feeble and puny as an atom, and that ultimately, at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. In the midst of tragedy, people came to Jesus wanting, wanting Jesus to, to affirm them and comfort them with words of their innocence. And Jesus says, you are not innocent. You are no more innocent than anyone else. I am the only one that is innocent. Therefore, repent of your arrogance and believe in the only one who was truly innocent but died the death of a criminal. Repent and keep repenting and turn your hearts towards the only one who brings hope. Let's pray. Lord, as, as much as we certainly do not wish moments like September 11 to happen, 
as much as tragedies like this should be avoided at all cost, they do afford us a moment to consider our lives, to consider our assumptions, to consider what we believe to be true about the world and humanity. And those are moments we shouldn't miss. Those are moments we shouldn't take for granted. I pray, Lord, that in moments like this and in the many to come, that we would stop and consider our own mortality, consider our hope and where it lies, consider our heroes. Lord, in these moments, I pray that you would, though you hate tragedy like this, and mourn the death of the fallen like we do, I pray that you would use it to draw people to yourself. I pray that you would use our luxury and comfort to draw us to yourself, but there is something about pain that slows the rest of the world down and makes us listen. So Lord, though I I, I know that you would prefer to whisper to us and have us listen, sometimes a shout is necessary. So Lord, I pray that when you shout, we would listen. We would honor, praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.